Last Sunday, we began a series I'm calling Dangerous Church. Um, coming to church can be hazardous to your health. I didn't mean like slipping <laughs> and sliding out on an icy highway, though, for some of you. But uh, uh, we're kind of looking at uh, what it means a little bit to be the church, but also uh, how we can uh, be a church that uh, folks take notice of. One of the questions that haunted me when I first came to Ray uh, that I wrestled with was this. If your church were to close its doors, would anybody notice? And uh, that question still drives me on many different levels. Uh, It's a question that haunts me at times. Um, And so we're going to look at that question a little bit in intro. But before we do, would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, would you notice if the church were to shut its doors? This church? Of course you would, because you're here. But would people outside of our church notice if we were to close our doors? Would people notice if we no longer had services? I'm sure our neighbors would notice because they'd be like, oh, there's all kinds of parking available on Sunday mornings. Uh, The senior center, uh, no longer would that lot be full on Sunday mornings. Uh, Would folks notice, though, beyond our neighbors? I mean, our immediate neighbors. Would people notice? Would people care if we were to close their doors, or frankly, for that matter, uh, how about another church in town? Would folks notice or care if another church in town were to close its doors? You know, churches have closed their doors in Ray before. Uh, The Seventh-day Adventist church is now Hillbilly Heaven. It is now a restaurant. And there was a church there that uh, met uh, before I got to town. There was a church that met there, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And even when I've been here in the last 10 years, there's been uh, folks that have gathered there and uh, either tried to start up a church or uh, just got together for worship or fellowship or whatever. Um, Did folks notice when that church closes doors? And what do I mean by this with notice? What do I mean by uh, would folks notice? I mean, surely you drive by and you go, wow, that's an interesting building. Uh, looks like nothing's happening there. Looks like nobody's home. Uh, you notice that way. But what do I mean by when I, when I say notice? Well, when I think of that, I think, what do outsiders, folks outside of our church, think of us? And how do they experience our church? And, and, and do they even know we're here? It's interesting because Bill Hybels, who is a pastor of a very large church in Chicago, Illinois. In fact, their morning worship attendance is somewhere along 20,000 people at their one church. And you would think that that church and folks in the neighborhood of that church would notice, right? And there was a man that came up on his church's campus and he was looking for his lost dog. And this man had driven by this church every day since he had moved into the neighborhood uh, 10 years prior. And he came onto this campus and Bill Hybel saw him. And this is a large campus. I mean, this is a big church. This is a city block size church. Mm -hmm. 
And Bill Hybel saw him. He comes out and he's like, sir, what are you doing? Uh, can I help you? And he says, I'm looking for my dog. Uh, I think maybe he wandered here onto your guys' school. Um, and Bill's like, school? Why do you think this is a school? And he's like, well, it's like a college, isn't it? I mean, and he's like, no, sir, our, our sign says church. <laughs> For 10 years, this man had driven by Willow Creek Community Church. And Willow Creek had worked very hard trying to create ministries that reached out into the neighborhood, that reached into the lives of people, into the lives of single mothers, into the lives of divorcees, into the lives of people grieving, into the lives of those nearby. And this man hadn't noticed. In fact, if Willow had shut its doors, it would have just been another place for his dog to get lost at. And Pastor Hybels took the opportunity to invite him to church. Now, I don't know if the man followed up on that, but it was a stark reminder for Bill Hybels that even a church of that size can go unnoticed in a town. Even a church that thinks that they're, they're making an impact and they're, and, they're, and they're doing all they can to help folks come to know Christ, that there are still those who won't take note. So I wonder, if our church were to close its doors, would people notice? There's an interesting story in the New Testament. We're going to take a look at this uh, today, and it has to do with Palm Sunday. Uh, it has to do with Jesus Christ. And if you have spent any time in church world, you know this story because you saw the flanograph, right? Um, you saw Jesus. And Jesus always had a white with a blue accent kind of robe thing going on. And, or maybe it was blue with white accent. I could never figure that out. Um, and, and Jesus shows up and then he tells his disciples to go and untie this donkey. Now, one thing when you read the Palm Sunday stories is it's good to read it in all of the Gospels. So we're going to do that right now. I'm just kidding. That'd be the whole sermon to just read the, the passage. But one thing you have to do is to read all of the accounts in the synoptic Gospels so that you get a feel for what's going on. Because they're not contradicting each other, but they, there's different ways that they tell the story. And Matthew's the one we're going to look at today. And Matthew says that there were two donkeys, and, and atheists and skeptics and others go, ah, there's a contradiction because the other Gospels say one donkey. And they're right, so we should all just pack up and go home. Right? <laughs> nah. Um, they just failed to mention the other one is one way you could look at it. I mean, who knows why they left that out. It was a detail they weren't terribly concerned about. And, and, and in Matthews, it says, go get this donkey and the, the baby of this donkey, the colt, and bring it to me. And if anybody questions you, just tell them the Lord has need of it. And then they're like, oh, of course, well, the Lord needs it. So here you go. Um, and so these disciples go, like Jesus says to do, and they get this donkey or donkeys, and they bring it back to Jesus. Now, um, it's interesting because as we read this account, uh, I want you to try to put yourself into the story. Put yourself on the side of the road. Put your, maybe you're the donkey. I don't know. Do something to put yourself in this story because this is one of those that you've heard every single year since you've been coming to church on a Sunday in late March or early April. And it's one of those stories that we can become completely and totally inoculated to, where it just doesn't get us anymore. So beginning in Matthew 21, verse 1. 
As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, (laughs) anything, you know, anything, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, it's interesting because one of the things we need to recognize that's going on in this passage is Jesus is acting as Lord and King. And it's a kind of subversive way he's doing this. It's a counterintuitive way that he's doing this. You know, if we were to have a monarchy established all of a sudden in the U.S. and you were named king or queen, how would you behave? What would be some of your first things you would do? Well, number one, I would win the lotto, right? I mean, that'd be one of the first things I would do. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, they're just, at the end of the month, there just isn't always enough at the end of the month, you know what I'm saying? Just making ends meet, that's kind of a, a headache sometimes. Wouldn't it be great to not have any money problems? Ever worry about money? Wouldn't it be nice to not worry about money? And if you're a king or a queen, you don't worry about money. And so that's one of the first things I would do. I'd figure out a way to get me a pile of gold and a pile of, of money, right? I mean, don't look bad at me. That's what you would do too, right? Uh, another thing I would do is I would find stuff that I like and bring it into my palace. First of all, i get a new palace, right? A big enough palace to bring all the stuff in that I want in my palace. I would get me some servants if I was a king. Wouldn't you get some servants? I mean, come on, right? You'd get some servants. I mean, who wants to do the dishes? Who wants to cook your own food? I mean, I like to barbecue, but I'd really like to have a barbecue chef that hung out at my house that was like my servant. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, boy, you know, baby back ribs is awfully sounding really good today. And he could just whip out some awesome... I mean, you'd get some servants, too. You'd get people to, to do all the stuff you don't want to do, and then you would have this life of leisure, and you'd have this life of not, not worrying. And my guess is, at the top of your list of things to possess, it would not be a donkey. Right? Did anybody of you think, oh, yeah, the first thing I would do, I would give me a donkey. <laughs> anybody? Or, or even a baby donkey, because baby donkeys... A donkey? I mean, I'd get a war horse, maybe. Although I'm scared of horses because horses like to injure me. Um, and my friends, uh, one of my friends, he was out on a horseback ride and it threw him and he landed on his femur on a sharp rock and it busted his femur and he almost bled to death. They had to hurry and get him to the hospital and he's got health problems to this day. I'm like, that's just not worth it to me. You know? Um, <laughs> Not, you're different than me, and that's okay. Uh, you know, I'm going to stay with my car. You can have your horse. But I, I, if I was king, I'd at least have a war horse, just to say I've got a war horse out back. I wouldn't have a, hey, i got a donkey out back. And Jesus says, go and get this donkey for me. Now, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, maybe you've chosen to be one of these two in the story, and you have been sent by Jesus, and it doesn't name them, so you're able just to go, oh, that's Steve, the disciple, who was asked by Jesus to go get the donkey. So you go and you get the donkey. And you're a good Jewish kid. You've been told, don't steal stuff that's not yours. And the king has said, go get the donkey. And he says, if anybody says, hey, what are you doing with my donkeys? You're supposed to say, well, uh, Jesus needs them. Really? 
Okay. Oh, okay, take them. I mean, that's the scenario that you have now placed yourself in. And one of the, we're told that they do actually tell them, hey, what are you doing with my donkeys? And they say it, and it works. I mean, talk about lame excuse. This is like the dog ate my homework kind of excuse, you know? <laughs> the Lord needs it. Oh, well, okay, see ya. I don't even know who the Lord is, but good for you. Take my donkeys. So you take the donkeys. <laughs> Not at the top of my list as king, but Jesus takes donkeys. Let's keep reading. Maybe something's going on here that we don't understand. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king. That's an important word. Your king. Important two words. Comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. And on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is orchestrating this whole thing. He is being very intentional. He is not acting on a whim. He's not acting on a whim like I would act on a whim if I were to realize all of a sudden that I am king. He is fulfilling an ancient prophecy that was spoken over 500 years before. And he's taking steps to to fulfill this. And he's taking steps that are very specific steps. And he's orchestrating something. Let's keep reading and see what he's orchestrating. The disciples went and did... and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, well, let's keep reading. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Anybody shout in church recently? Anybody? No. Children sometimes. (laughs) And then they get in trouble. Okay. That's a bummer. My guess is there'll be some shouting in heaven. And this might be one of the things that's shouted. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, they are quoting a psalm there. But one thing they're doing is they are yelling something that is of amazing significance because the psalm they are quoting is what's called a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that uh, is prophesying the Messiah, the one who is king. That's another word for king is Messiah in Hebrew. Uh, Christ, which we think of as Jesus' last name, is actually not his last name. It's his title, Christ, which is Greek for the king. Jesus the king, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And they are shouting, Hosanna, which doesn't mean, hey, good for you, or hooray for you. It means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. And not only that, they sing, they yell, Son of David, save us. I mean, this has so many political undertones in it. It's scary. It's dangerous. You do remember that every time Jesus uh, did a significant miracle, do you remember what he quickly told those people? Shh, don't tell anybody. (laughs) My arm used to be like this long, and then I went and saw this guy named Jesus. I had this full arm. And then he told me, don't tell anybody. You think the town's going to (laughs) notice? Or I used to have leprosy, and I used to walk around, and I used to say, 
unclean, stay away from me. And now I'm not unclean. And Jesus has told me, shh, don't tell anybody. Think anybody's going to notice? I was hungry one day. I was hanging out with 5,000 of my best friends on this hillside. And we were listening to Jesus. And it was late in the evening. And there was no convenience stores open. 7-Eleven wasn't even invented yet. And we had no way of feeding ourselves. And next thing we know is there are baskets of food making its way down the hillside. And I ate and I ate. And let me tell you, that was some good bread. And the fish, mm, wow, I've had some good fish. But that fish was fantastic. It was like cooked by a master chef or something. And I sat there and I ate and I got so full. I was like, I was telling the kids, why do I do this to myself? (laughs) And then they had extras. Oh, but I wasn't supposed to tell you that story because at the end, Jesus dismissed us and he said, shh, don't tell anybody. Why did Jesus keep telling folks, shh, don't tell anybody? You see, Jesus has been all along in his life orchestrating things because one of the things he was worried about, he wasn't really worried because he was God, but one of the things he knew was that if people went out and said, wow, there's this guy that healed me, then he must be, and others would say, he is king, Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And if Israel got all crazy and up in arms and they're like, let's do this thing. Let's go down to Jerusalem and take on the Romans and get them out of here because we have found our king. And Jesus knew his time wasn't ready. But guess what's happening now? His time's ready. He doesn't tell them, shh, don't tell anyone. He's actually orchestrating this whole parade. He's orchestrating this whole entry so that everybody is yelling, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Son of David, save us. He doesn't get after anybody. He doesn't tell them, stop yelling that. He says, bring it on. Riding a donkey into town. So, he's acting like a king. This is often missed because uh, we, number one, don't understand what's going on. But 200 years prior to this, there was a revolt Uh, The Jews revolted and they were able to free Jerusalem. And the commander of that revolt was Maccabus. And he rode into Jerusalem on a horse. And the people, you know what they did? They took palm branches and they grabbed those things and they waved them in the air and they threw them on the ground and they put their coats on the ground. So this man on his war horse coming into Jerusalem, having liberated the town, having beaten the the oppressors, and they shouted, Hosanna! You see... Dr. Stanley Hauerwas, a scholar at Duke University, he thinks that what's going on in this is Jesus is orchestrating this whole parody of a procession. It's a parody. He's, he's kind of mocking it. He's making fun of it because he comes riding gentle on a donkey. But this isn't lost on the people. They see a king riding in. Anybody own any animals that people ride occasionally? Um, what has to be done to those animals before somebody like me can ride in it? Or anybody? It's got to be broken, right? It's got to be trained. Did you notice what is going on with this animal that Jesus is riding? 
He's riding a baby donkey. Actually, the other three Gospels tell us he's riding a colt. And they even throw in the detail, which had never been ridden before. Jesus is a cowboy, folks. <laughs> now think about this. When you ride a, a colt for the first time, what happens? You don't stay on it long. I've been to rodeos. I've seen what happens when you... And those guys have been ridden before, but, you know, they're still crazy. You get thrown. And Jesus is on a colt that has never been ridden before, riding through a procession of a town where everybody on the side of the road is yelling, Hosanna! Save us, son of David! I've seen horses at parades freak out with a handful of children on the side going, ah! And those are well-trained animals that are in a parade because they are in a parade. They've got the blinders. They've got the whole nine yards. Uh, Jesus is on a never-ridden-before colt on a crazy road full of people yelling, throwing things down in front. How is it that this colt isn't just freaking out? Because he's king. He's Lord. You see, the, the cult realizes, I'm under the master's hand. The master's hand, the one that, has, that oversees all the universe, all the world, the one who can still the storm, the one who can calm the anxious heart of a cult and ride it into town. <laughs> now that's a cowboy. That's impressive. He doesn't even have a... He, he's got a coat he's riding. And he doesn't even have reins. He doesn't even have a saddle to hang on. This is bareback riding of a colt. And Jesus is showing us, even in that, that he is king of everything. That he's even powerful enough to ride an unbroken colt into town with screaming people on each side. You know, aren't you glad we're walking through this story? I mean, just think of what you would have missed out if you just read this. <laughs> so, let's keep reading. See what else might be going on. Because they are screaming and shouting, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, remember, he is orchestrating this whole thing. He is doing this on purpose. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? That's why he did this. So the whole city would get stirred up and ask, who is this? I mean, who grabs a colt that's never been ridden before and ride it into town? Who is this that everybody is screaming and shouting, Hosanna, the son of David? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And notice how Jesus isn't saying, shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house, whose house? My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. You know, the only person that has the right to, 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 to rearrange the furniture in my house well, Marnie does. 
<laughs> but her name's on the loan, so she's an owner. Who has the right to rearrange the furniture in your house? The owner. That's it. The children don't own it. They can't rearrange the furniture. The owner shows up and rearranges the furniture. Jesus owns the house. The temple walks in. I don't like what this is looking like. He comes in and the owner's mad. He's back. He's kicking butt and taking names. And Jesus is upset. My house. He's acting like a king. You think those people like Jesus? Any, anybody? You think they liked him? <laughs> you see, the interesting thing is we have this vision, this picture of Jesus that, oh, he's so likable. Everybody just likes Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. Everybody just likes Jesus. In fact, Jesus doesn't want to be liked by you or anybody else. Jesus wants to be worshipped and obeyed. He doesn't want to be liked. He either wants to be worshipped and obeyed or he wants you to flee. And you see that in the next part of this. Actually, we're about to get there. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And that's a significant thing we're not going to get into. But when, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the people in charge, saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Ooh. Ever been indignant before? Ever been indignant at the wrong thing before? You see, it's the same emotion Jesus felt. He felt indignant with what they were doing in his house. And these guys feel indignant with what the owner's doing with his house. Sometimes we can feel indignation and be wrong. It's got to be the right type of indignation. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. The mutterers are back on the scene, right? <laughs> and you got to love what Jesus says. Yes. Jesus replied, duh. They've been yelling it for like blocks. Have you never read? Now, by the way, when Jesus says this to the religious leaders and scholars, he's insulting them every time. He is. Haven't you read? Duh. You gotta love this. I mean, this is like some kind of like jujitsu move, okay? Just like quick backhand to the face, right? He says, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? That's all he says. And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Okay, that was interesting. We had this big procession. Jesus got into his house. He rearranged some furniture. He got into the faces of the Pharisees. End of story. It's kind of a weird anticlimactic ending, isn't it? And he left and went outside of the city. Jesus is orchestrating this whole thing to do one thing, at least. He's causing them to ask are you going to crown me or kill me? 
Are you going to crown me or kill me? It's time. It's time to recognize that the king of Israel, the Messiah, the Christ is here. That's why I rode this donkey into town. That's why all this stuff was orchestrated so that you could see that I am the one. Are you going to crown me or kill me? And that question reverberates throughout history and it lands in your lap today. Think about it. Jesus is king and that means that he can't be what you what some of you have him as being in your life. There was this woman, her name was Barbara Boyd. She was a Bible teacher. And she gave a talk, it was a lordship talk. And uh, lordship talks are where you talk about Christ being your savior and Lord. Because oftentimes people stop at the savior part. Oh, well, I've got my fire insurance. And they stop at the Lord part. And she says, that's impossible. And she said, if you were to call me and you were to say, Uh, Miss Barbara is welcome, but Miss Boyd isn't. Her name was Barbara Boyd. She's like, well, there's not a part of me that's Barbara and another part of me that's Boyd. I mean, if you ask Barbara to show up, you're getting Barbara Boyd. If you're asking Steve to show up, but not Mr. Winecoop, huh? It's impossible. And see, some of us ask Jesus into our heart, but we want to leave the king outside. We ask Jesus, but we're like, and Christ, you can, you can stay over there. I like Jesus. I don't like the king. I, I want a savior, but I don't want a Lord. And it doesn't work that way. You get Jesus Christ. You get savior, Lord. That's the only way it works. You can't pick and choose how the king is going to rule and reign in your heart. He either does or he doesn't. Pretty black and white, right? And Jesus is asking us this same question today. Are you going to crown me or are you going to kill me? So the question is put to you. Will you crown him? Or will you kill him? Now, obviously, that whole killing thing sounds violent and mean and nasty. What I mean by that is... Are, are you going to put him off the throne? Are you going to put him out of your life? Oh, but I love Jesus. I like Jesus. I want to be Jesus' friend. I want to be eternally saved. I don't want to go to hell. I understand that. You want a Savior. But part of the deal is you get a Savior and Lord. They're wrapped up in the same person. And the only person who is strong enough to save you is the Lord. The only one who is able to live the life that you should have lived. And to die the death you deserve to die is the Lord. That's the only one who could accomplish this. And therefore, he can only save you if he's Lord. You see, a lot of people think uh, he's this good example for us to see. He's this good example for us to follow. Lots of church people think this. Jesus is a good example. That's not what he is. He's not an example of how to save yourself. He's not an example of somebody who is strong. Look at this story. Look how he orchestrates this. Strong kings don't ride donkeys. 
And the whole picture is to demonstrate that his rule and his reign comes through power under, not power over. That it comes through his death and his suffering and his conquering of death by rising again from the dead. It does not come through the sword. It does not come on a white horse. He's going to become the rightful king by serving the world through his death. Are you going to crown this king or are you going to kill this king? You know, this has such amazing ramifications for us as a church. Imagine a church full of people that are so convinced that Jesus is king what would you fear? I mean, next week is Sunday. Next week is Sunday. And that's true every week. I'm a professional preacher. Um, Next Sunday is Easter. And did you know, I mean, this is a proven fact to people who study this stuff. All good red-blooded Americans show up at church on Easter. I mean, at least use that as an insult to your neighbor who's not willing to come with you on Easter. You call yourself an American? Well, yeah. Why aren't you at church on Easter? Uh, you should come with me. Okay. Uh, no. What, are you a commie? No, I'm an American. Well, then you should be at church on Easter. And Christmas too, by the way. I mean, every American shows up at church on Christmas and Easter. And you're afraid of of walking across the street and striking up a conversation and saying, hey, would you like to come to church next Sunday with me? You're a little afraid of that? You're a little scared of that? You're afraid they might go, uh, no. Imagine if a church was convinced that Jesus is king. Imagine a church that was convinced he's the Lord, that he is the risen Messiah, king of everything. And he is coming back to put all things right in this world. Imagine a church that started to act like that, that started to work, that started to say, yes, we are angry about this thing and that thing. And we are indignant about the things that make Jesus indignant. And we are upset about the death and the suffering and the pain in this world and we want to try to do something about it because our king Jesus one day will show up and do something about it. You think that's a king folks would want to follow? I mean sadly, how many people have this manby pamby picture of Jesus? And do you know where they get the manby pamby picture of Jesus? The scriptures say, you and I are the body of Christ. It's because they've come to one too many church services where they counted the ceiling tiles instead of listened to the life-changing message of Jesus Christ because it wasn't given in a powerful way. It wasn't given in a real way. They haven't seen people that are real, true Christians in their lives who've decided he is king and I will crown him. Are you, are, am I, are we, are we, we offering a contagious view of Christianity to people? Are we offering a view of this king that is so endearing, that just so challenges people that they want a part of it? 
Or do they go church and they run for the hills? Will you crown him? Or will you crucify him? You know, the story continues and that's what Holy Week's about. You know what the answer was in the first century? They crucified him. And as bad as that sounds, that was actually a really good thing. But that offer does not no longer exist. You either crown him or you die. That's how it works now. Because he's already died. But the cool thing with him was death couldn't hold him. So you can kill him all you want. It ain't going to work again. <laughs> You'll just be on the outside looking in on the kingdom that is going to win. It must be how the Oakland Raiders feel when they watch the Denver Broncos. <laughs> <laughs> I just needed to have you connect with what that feeling is like. <laughs> Crown the king. Do it today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. Wow, what a cool story. <laughs> I'm just amazed that you were able to ride an unbroken colt through a screaming crowd children running up and down, throwing things, carrying on. What a picture. What a picture of your authority, of your lordship. And it's been buried in this text for 2,000 years and so often we miss it. Lord, help us to unpack the jewels that are in your word. Forgive us when we walk away thinking we got it all figured out. Lord, I do pray for each person here who is wrestling with this question. Are they going to crown you or crucify you? Lord, I pray that you would help each of us through the power of the Holy Spirit resolve this in our hearts today. And that we would be able to look at March 24th, 2013 as the day we decided that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. That he is Lord. He is Master he is Messiah. He is Christ. He is King. And we are His servant. Holy Spirit, help us. Make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you. And may you crown Him with many crowns.